0: I am going on sabbatical in eight days. You know, who's counting? <laughs> I am counting. I am counting. Yes. I had it scheduled for May of 2020. I was going to go on my first sabbatical in my years of ministry, and then things happened that got in the way of me going on sabbatical in May of 2020. Uh, so, this is my rescheduled sabbatical happening a little bit over two years later. 11 years into this ministry or so, uh, this is my first sabbatical. Very excited about it. I'm going to be gone for six weeks. Someone else is excited for me. I'm going to celebrate something in your life next. Uh, We're a great team around here. Yeah, so what am I going to be doing for six weeks? Just hanging out at a five-star resort for six weeks. That's what I'm going to be doing. No way, guys. You can expect that I'll still be coming back with bags under my eyes because I am a parent of five children, and I will be doing that. And in fact, I'm going to be upping the ante. At least the plan is right now for a solid portion of my sabbatical. We're all going to cram into about 150 square feet in a trailer and go all the way up to Montana and back. So uh, yeah, you can pray for me (laughs) on my sabbatical. We'll we'll see what happens. If, If it does happen... First Sunday back, it's a slideshow, guys. You know, it'll be really fun. Uh, but anyway, it's going to be great. Uh, while I'm gone, of course, we've got a team teaching model. There's going to be Brock and Brian Sumner and Austin Akers from our team that are going to be regularly teaching uh, during a series in Second Timothy. I'm here next weekend. I'm going to kick that off, get that started, and then it's going to run for the next six weeks. We're also going to have three local pastors of churches here in Huntington Beach. Paul Harmon from Hope Chapel and Pat Cottrell from Calvary Baptist and Joel Kelly from Radiant Church. All churches in Huntington Beach that collaborate with us and have over the years, their pastors are going to be coming in and sharing from that study in 2 Timothy. So it's going to be a beautiful six weeks of church unity as well that I think is going to shape us as a community. So I'm excited for it. I would love for you guys to step in, lean into that experience and all the other things going on. Before I go, of course, I'm packing in so much So that I can feel, you know, good about that six weeks being off. So spiritual gifts tomorrow night. I do just want to press you and say go to it if you can have a chance to get to it. Because that's where we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit works through us. Some of you guys have questions about that. Some of you guys have little experience with that. A lot of experience with that. What's the culture of branches? All of that. It's going to be covered tomorrow night. It could be an hour. It could be a little bit longer than that. It's also in the live stream, okay, because we believe it's going to be an important resource for us as a church community. So doing a lot before I leave, and one thing I'm doing is I'm closing out this series in the book of Matthew. I couldn't leave before doing that. A year and a half in, I wasn't going to leave that for someone else. So let's open up here to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start our reading in verse 16. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. And one of the ushers will pass one to you. This is your first Sunday. Sorry, you missed a year and a half of the whole series. But you can go online. There's a podcast you can listen to for the next year and a half to f- fill in all the things you missed. But, you know, this really is a teaching that stands on its own. It's a powerful set of statements that I believe are going to set vision for who we are to reorient us as the church. To tee it up, just want to remind you last week was Easter in July. We were talking all about the resurrection of Jesus and its significance. You know, we talked about how it's a true event. It's something that demonstrates the unstoppable power and authority of God. It's something that changes and transforms our disposition and our fundamental identity as a people. Now, that world-changing event, that history-changing event was revealed to the two Marys, and they were also commissioned by the risen Jesus to go tell his disciples that He was going on ahead of them to Galilee. There they would meet with Him. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in verse 16. They are meeting with Him. Let's read together. Verses will be on the screen. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, so they followed this command, this order, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And so concludes the book of Matthew. We're going to pause there today because that is the end. I always say, that. let's pause there today. Well, that's where we're going to pause. That's the end of the book. Guys, have you ever had in your life a place, a location, a physical location of significance for you, a place that you return to, a place that reorients you in your life, maybe somewhere from your childhood, somewhere from your adulthood that was consequential, My wife and I, uh, we sometimes return to the location of our first date, Ruby Street in Laguna Beach. Best kept secret, no longer a secret. Yeah, my wife picked me up at the airport. That was the first time we ever saw each other in person when she picked me up at the airport. Long story, no time for it today. But uh, we drove from LAX to Laguna Beach. Actually, we drove about an hour north of LAX because my wife took the wrong exit. She was so enamored, you know, uh, that she got mixed up where she was going. So we drove an hour north, and then an hour south, and then another hour and a half or two south, and then we picked up pizza and we went to Ruby Street, and that's where it all began. On the bench there, looking at the ocean, looking at each other, you know, the rest is history. So... That's a place we go back to or we reorient ourselves. It's always going to have that significance for us when we reenter into that space. And there's something similar going on here with Jesus and His disciples. You now, the eleven are gathered back with Him in a familiar place to them in Galilee. This is the region of their hometowns. They're ending where it all began. And this ending is, in fact, a new beginning of significance. Now, when the disciples first encountered Jesus... It says that some worshipped him. Now this is in defense of Jesus' divinity here, this statement. I mean, when they saw Jesus, they did not think he was just a man. They didn't think he was a ghost. They didn't think he was some moral teacher. They saw the risen Jesus, and they said he's God. He's the Son of God, and they worshipped him. You only worship God. It's the same response that the women had in our study last week. When they saw the risen Jesus, they worshipped him. He's divine. But it also has this strange inclusion here that some of them doubted. What in the world is going on with this? Why are some of them doubting what they're seeing before them? You know, in fact, if you line this up with the other Gospels, we know that the disciples have already seen the risen Jesus more than once. So what's the deal with them doubting right here? Well, if you get into the language a little bit more, you understand that this is kind of a superficial way to translate this word. And in the English, we don't really get the nuance of what's happening here. The only other time that this word that's translated as doubt is used in the Gospel of Matthew is when Peter is walking on the water, right? He's walking out to Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's walking on the water. But the second he begins to see the wind and the waves and hesitates, that's when he starts to sink in the water. And the word that's used as doubt here is used in that scenario. So it's really more about hesitation, being double-minded more than it is this fixed idea that, oh, what we're seeing isn't real. Why in the world would they have that hesitation? Why in the world would they feel that, like, double-mindedness taking in Jesus and His resurrection right here? Well, think of it like how you feel on a day of very big significance. I've been there in countless wedding ceremonies, and I've counseled countless grooms before they're about to get married. It's in the final hour, and they're feeling the weight of the moment, right? Right? And I would never say that any men that I've had the privilege of officiating a ceremony for doubt it. We wouldn't want to say that, right? I mean, that that's not a good look for the men of branches. So if I've ever married you, wives, don't think. It's doubt that I'm speaking of right now. No, but there's this weight. Like, what is this going to mean? What is this going to be? What does the future hold? It's all in this one decision. You know, there's that... I mean, I don't know how to put it. There's a little bit of hesitation. There's a lot going on in someone's mind. And you always have that, you know, A-plus groomsman who chimes in and says, hey, there's still time, you know, to change your mind. That's want I hit that guy every time. You know, that's the most public statement of, I have a horrible marriage, you know. Don't listen to that guy for anything, right? But what I'm trying to say is, like, that's the atmosphere, That's the setting of this experience. They're seeing the risen Jesus, their teacher and Lord, and they're meeting Him at the place where He said, we've got to come together. What is this meeting going to entail? What is going to happen next? It says Jesus approaches their worship and hesitation with this bold declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And with that statement, Jesus establishes the new norm. He establishes His new rank and voice in the world. we got a new sheriff in town. That's what it feels like. And it's hard for us to sort of wrap our mind around that level of authority, that amount of consolidated power. You know, we don't really have something that we can connect to in our own, like, form of government. We don't have a dictator. We don't have a totalitarian leader, you know, that's like able to say, whatever I say goes, and I just make all the decisions. The closest thing I can see about our president is this power that the Constitution gives the president, which I think is pretty astonishing when you consider it, the power to pardon. Have you ever thought about how astonishing that power is, that a president, one person in America, can take someone who's convicted of a federal crime, they've gone through the whole criminal process, They've been proved guilty. They've probably appealed and they've lost the appeal. They're guilty. They've got a sentence against them and the president can go, no. No, that never happened. You know, we're just going to just excuse that. We're going to write that one off the books. Really? We've given the president that power and that authority to say, no, you know, whatever whatever was done in the entire system of government, uh, you know, we're just going to say no. It sounds like the ultimate tool of corruption to me. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. You think about it. But but that's evidence of authority. That's evidence of power in our structure. No one can check that. No one can change the mind of the president. There's no other system to keep that in balance. That's just it. What he says goes. And Jesus is coming on the scene and saying, I have that authority and power with everything. Everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in heaven, what I say goes and no one challenges it, and no one checks it. Literally everything is under my control now. Okay, so what? What's going to happen now? (laughs) You know, okay, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now is it time to party? Is it time to celebrate? Is it time to go dethrone all the people in authority and power of all the governments of the world? Is it time to... Fight their resistance against God's ways. Let's go get those crooks that crucified Jesus. What now? All authority is yours. What are we going to do with it? And the command is none of the things I mentioned. The command is to go. Go, therefore, Jesus says in verse 19. Depart. Journey. Go journey. Go travel and make disciples. Make apprentices of me. Make followers for me. And this right here, in this statement, this is pretty consequential. This is the succinct mission statement, the purpose statement of the church. Okay, the people of God. This is what we do. This is what drives us. This is what's behind why we are a people together is to fulfill this purpose. It's very simple. It's very clear. It's crystal clear. It's so clear, in fact, when we as a church community were like, well, let's articulate our mission statement. We just copy and pasted. We didn't reinvent the wheel. You didn't have to add anything. Our mission as branches literally is to be and make disciples of Jesus. Because that was the commission that was given. He didn't say, I want you guys to go build Big, beautiful venues where nameless people come together and congregate. He didn't say, This is my mission for you guys. I want you to go be very, very wealthy. And I want you to market a very compelling religious brand. And you're going to attract the attention of a lot of people through your magnetic personalities. That wasn't the mission that was given. That's not what he said to go do. He didn't say, hey, I want you to go fight against all those who are resisting my ways. Knowing authority, he said, go and make disciples. Go make fully devoted, committed, not talkers, not talkers, walkers and talkers of God's ways. This isn't the scattershot ministry to a crowd, to just a random group of people. This is intentional person-to-person depth that Jesus modeled in His ministry and also commanded us to do. That's why His branches, and really this whole set of statements here, is formative for us as a community. This is, this is orienting for us. This gives us vision and perspective for what ought to drive us, and, and this statement that we're to make disciples, that there's supposed to be depth, there's supposed to be person to person. This is why it's not our number one goal to just get as big and wide as possible as a community, but to pursue depth. We're looking for depth. We weren't asked to compromise God's standards or lower the bar on what Jesus said to sell ourselves out just to simply win a larger group of people. If the choice is more people that are less engaged or less people that are more engaged looking at the example of Jesus the choice is clear he went with less people more engaged even as he was always seeking more people more engaged and that's what you're gonna get if you're here as part of branches now I'm concerned as I reflect on the past several decades of ministry in America that there isn't a trend in the opposite direction from that depth that Jesus called forth. that we're not you know, sort of falling into, and this is my concern, the slow demise of spiritual depth. Some would argue that the rise of the megachurch over the last several decades, the last 40 years, that is, churches over 1,000 people, that that's actually saved the faith in America. You know, instead of it causing this slow demise, no, this is the only thing that's kept us alive. This is why we still have Christians. It saved us from the old traditional denominations dying away. But it's a project, this megachurch phenomenon and the growth of these larger churches, it's a a project that's worth scrutinizing for a few minutes. And I don't think the problem is that we produced big churches in America. I could only wish, guys, that every church in America, every church in Huntington Beach would be filled with thousands of fully devoted Christ followers. I mean, we could all wish for that. We could all hope for that. The problem is not size. I mean, for crying out loud, in Acts chapter 2, the first church after Peter preached was a megachurch. Thousands of people came to faith that particular day. I really think, in reflection, the problem is in the way we've gone about getting churches that big for the last several decades. You see, the early church wasn't built on entertaining personalities and limitless programming for your kids like the church of today. It was built on the contributions and sacrifices of believers who were filled with the Spirit and devoted to living the teachings of Jesus as true disciples. And the church's early leaders, the apostles, were devoted to the same things, to prayer and to the example of Christ in God's Word. So there may be a lot of people still in churches today, But guys, if we increasingly trade our Christ distinctiveness, what makes us disciples for just more entertainment and higher levels of production, and if we consolidate our leadership increasingly down to a few really engaging magnetic personalities on these YouTube live streams where more and more people are following just them and there's less pastors actually embedded alongside the people, then how long does that play out until the spiritual waters are so diluted you can't tell the difference between the church and just another social group? We become just another voting block. We become just another club. We become just another nice thing that functional suburban families are involved with. But what is the church? What is it supposed to be? What is its mission? Is it supposed to be a place that serves and caters to your every need? Or is it supposed to be a people? Who are transformed and empowered and released to live into the purposes of God. I was thinking about this. What's an environment that caters to and pampers you in your every need? And I was thinking, hmm, hospice. Hospice is the sort of place that caters to and pampers you and your every need. And my concern is that we are creating a bunch of spiritual hospice centers across America. Do you know the next step after hospice? It's death. We are not to be partakers in a spiritual hospice experience. We are to be the spiritual doctors without borders. You know what I'm talking about? Doctors without borders? This is the real deal. These doctors, they got their PhDs, they got it set, right? They got got life here in America or in some other developed country, and they got a good paycheck, and they're just good. They can ride off into the sunset, and they say, you know what, I'm going to hop on a plane and go to the third world country where they have no development and no assistance, and I'm going to risk life and limb to help others. That's what the church ought to be. That's who we ought to be. We ought to be the spiritual doctors without borders. We're, we're going to a foreign land. We're going out into Huntington Beach. We're not seeking to serve ourselves. We're seeking to serve those who are furthest from God. Jesus, in all authority, is saying, Go, church. That's what this is about. That's what they did in Acts chapter 2. That's why the church is just on fire. That's where this movement began. They were going. They were journeying, they were traveling, and they were making disciples. Making disciples. Seeking that depth. Now what sort of disciples were they making? Jesus says, first of all, they're disciples of all nations. That's what he was calling for. In our nation, in particular, in the Declaration of Independence, it begins with this famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I should have shared this on 4th of July. I'm still feeling patriotic, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and it's a revolutionary statement. I mean, it took a while for it to become real in our country, but we got there, you know, we're getting there, it's a revolutionary statement. But you know, it wasn't the first time a statement like that was made. 1,750 years before that statement was recorded, we had just as revolutionary of a statement in Jesus calling for disciples of all nations. You know, up until this time, this moment, what I read this morning, you know, it was anything but self evident that all people were created equal. It was precisely the opposite in everyone's imagination. You know, in the Jewish imagination, They thought they were far superior to all the other nations. And their dream was that God was going to bless them so much as a nation that all the other inferior nations would be drawn to them and see their superiority. It was this Jewish exceptionalism. And you know what? That wasn't rare. That was every other nation in the world at that time. The Romans thought they were superior to all the inferior nations that they subjugated. They had Roman exceptionalism. And the Parthians, you guys probably haven't even heard of them because they didn't stick around very long, but they thought we're the best. You know, on and on and on. Everybody hated each other and everybody thought they were superior to each other. But the kingdom of God, it's not the great Jewish project. It wasn't the great Roman project and it's not the great American project. Jesus was turning all of that inside out. He said, I'm not propping up any one nation. I'm bearing the kingdom of heaven, which is above every nation. It's not about... Whoa, amen! Yeah, I, I throw things when I make my point, you know, just to add to the point. It's not about any one nation's state of exceptionalism. His comment was here that all people are exceptional because all of them are valued by God. So you're not going to wait for all these inferior people to come to your superiority. You're going to go to them. You're going to, at this time in history, risk it all to go to them and express to them their value in God's eyes. So this is earth shattering. This is a revolutionary statement about the value of all humanity in the eyes of God. But it's also a rallying cry for us because we're not to be a people that reach all people like us in Huntington Beach. We're to be a people that just reach all people in Huntington Beach. We're not called to reach all people like us in Huntington Beach. We're called to reach all people just as they were called to all nations. We're not to care about anyone's age, marital status, interests, political leaning, fashion sense, economic level, heritage, culture, ethnicity, religious background, or education. God is sending me and you to everyone. The more all over the place we get here in the demographics, the more accurate we are representing what heaven is going to look like. But I know our instinct is to feel on the outside even when we're on the inside of something. You know, I remember going to this fancy restaurant in Kansas, Manhattan, Kansas, and I know what you're thinking. There's a fancy restaurant in Manhattan, Kansas? Yes, there was. Don't judge Manhattan, Kansas. I walked into this fancy restaurant and I knew immediately I was underdressed which is a problem for me all the time, apparently. Some of you look at me on Sunday and say, oh, this guy's a little bit underdressed for what he's doing this Sunday. But I had that feeling the second I walked into that fancy restaurant, you know what, no one had to tell me. No one had to say, hey, you look out of place, you know. I didn't even have to think about it. I just walked in, I looked around, and I went, I don't belong here right now. And that's when they open up the, you know, the closet with the sport coat that got left, and they put it on, you know, it barely fits you, you look awkward in your dad's outfit or whatever. And that was how I spent my evening. But what I'm trying to say is like that took no energy for me. That was natural. That was instinctive. I knew I don't belong. And people do that all the time when they step into a church community. Young people come in. Oh, this is an old community. Older folks come in. They say, oh, this is a young community. New people come in and they say, oh, everybody here knows each other. I don't belong. Let me finish this once and for all as if my words had this much power. I don't care where you are from. I don't care who you are. You belong here. You belong here. You are valued by God. You know, you may think to yourself, oh, this is my distinctiveness, and this is what makes me stand out, and this is what makes me not feel like I'm a part. Instead of those qualities... Being to you this definition that you don't belong or that it's a mark of shame, let those qualities be a badge of honor because you are helping us be a reflection of the diversity of the body of Christ. We are fulfilling our mission because you exist as part of this fellowship. That's what Jesus saw. He said, Go, therefore, journey and make disciples of all nations. It's it's this deep, Seeking, inclusive, rallying cry. that's also paired with the most open door of initiation. Continuing, he says, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in three persons. God, singular, in three persons. Immerse them in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what is it about that statement that would make me say that that's an open door? Well, notice the order here of what Jesus is saying. He says, baptize and then teach. He doesn't say teach and then baptize. He says, go to people, go seek them out, people from all over the place, all different types of people, and open the door. Start with baptism. Don't finish with baptism. Don't wait till these folks think they know it all, and then you baptize them. It's like in school, I had to go through four tumultuous years of education in order to get my diploma. And there was a graduation ceremony, and they awarded me this piece of paper which told me that I know some things about some things. And that's what I got. That was my reward for the time spent and the money spent. Look at me. I've got a degree. And there was a graduation ceremony. Baptism is not that. It is not you've learned all these things and you've gotten your life totally sorted out and you've done away with all the sin and now you're basically Ned Flanders. You're ready to be baptized. It's the exact opposite. Baptism is the starting place. You want to give your life to Jesus. You don't know what it's going to entail. You don't have it all figured out yet. Guess what? You're welcomed in. You can be immersed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a graduation ceremony. It is your new birth It's the beginning, it's the first stage. And you will not arrive in four years. You will not arrive in 40 years. You are going to arrive when you arrive at heaven's gate. That's when you will arrive. But nothing is stopping you from being baptized today. So I tell you, if you're giving your life to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, and you want to be baptized today, be baptized today. This is what they did in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. You know, they baptize first and ask questions later. Philip was sent to this Ethiopian eunuch, this foreigner, this person way outside, you know, the plans of God in the Jewish mind. And he opens up the Scriptures with him and shows him Jesus in the Scriptures. And the guy says in verse 36, what's stopping me from being baptized right now? And the guy hasn't figured it all out. You know, he hasn't changed all these aspects about his life. He's just seen Jesus in the Scriptures. He says, Jesus is Lord. Well, what's keeping me from being baptized? Nothing. And they went and baptized Him. And it happened just like that. It was the open door of initiation. If you want to be baptized today, we'll baptize you today. Let's go down to the ocean. i got a pool in my backyard. I might have plans this afternoon. I'm canceling them. Let's do this. If you want in on God's kingdom, there is an open door for you and you can be immersed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so begin this life-changing journey on the other side of that decision. Then the journey begins, for he says we are to make disciples of all nations, initiate with baptism, and then teach these new disciples to obey everything Jesus commanded. You know, this final part I take seriously. I take it all seriously, but I take this part seriously, to teach to obey everything Jesus commanded. That's why we took a year and a half through the book of Matthew, we didn't cut anything short, we didn't cut anything out, because the word for obey here means to guard. It means to keep. It means to secure. You're going to keep. You're going to secure. You're going to guard my words when you're my disciples. So many people, they hear the words of Jesus and they think instinctively, let me round off the edges. Let me find a way to make this more palatable. This is a really lofty ideal. I don't know if this makes sense in practicality in my life. and That's not what we're called to do. As disciples, He said it and we're supposed to guard it. We're supposed to keep it. We're supposed to protect it and value it. And that's what we're trying to do here in the Branches community. We're trying to guard all of His words. He says, I have all authority. Now I want you to keep and guard and secure all of my words. Everything that I've said. For so much of Christian history, it's been preach the gospel. It's been preach the cross. Preach salvation. Yes and amen. Preach it all day long. But what are the first 26 chapters of the book of Matthew? Matthew. Did Jesus just waste his breath spending all that time talking about how we are to live, and he didn't really mean for us to live into any of it? Guys, Jesus is not just some Tony Robbins who's given us some ideas to up the game of your life, where you can just sort of relate to it as take it or leave it. He's the author of life, the one through whom everything was made, who's told you and I with authority the exclusive way to live. It's not options. It's not take it or leave it. These are the words of life spoken with authority into every single one of our lives. It's the command of your risen Lord and mine. So it's our prerogative here to keep and secure and to protect those words and to treasure them in our lives. You know, when I go to teach and when I go to preach, I am not preaching primarily for intellectual stimulation you're like obviously no but truly truly If all you walked away with was some new insights oh some new cool facts in the Bible that is not the purpose of teaching and preaching to me from what Jesus says here I am not here to teach and preach so that you can get all the feels all the spiritual feels that you're searching for that is not the purpose and design of what jesus said we would be as disciples i am not teaching to entertain you again you say amen i'm not entertained but i mean truly i mean i'm not here to simply just entertain you and make sure we have a good time together no the purpose of teaching and preaching is toward the end of transformation is toward the end of transformation it's going to involve our thinking and our minds it's going to involve our emotions and our hearts and I hope and I pray it's going to be engaging, but I'm trying. I mean, that's my effort is toward this end of transformation. Because if you're to open up the Gospel and you're to close your eyes and you're just to point at one of the red letters, chances are it's something that deals with your character, who you are as a person, how you're living and behaving and relating to the people around you. That's where the Lord wants to work in our lives. In that pursuit of fulfilling his commands. What's driving that? Is that because we want to be really self righteous? Is that because we want to be really super spiritual and prove to everybody how Jesus like we are? Guys, that's not motivating me. No one can attain to these ideals in their fullness. But I think of it like oxygen, I think of it like water. You know, I love oxygen. I'm just going to come out and say it, guys. I love oxygen. I don't know how many of you guys have been appreciating oxygen lately and water, and food. I mean, I love those things because they bring me life. They're the fundamental building blocks of life. When I look at the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus, I secure it and I keep it and I protect it because I look at it like oxygen, like water, like food. It's not a burden. It's not, it's not a badge of honor. It's the source of life. That's what we pursue. As disciples, Now, gratefully, the final statement of Jesus in verse 20 is that we don't pursue these high ideals in isolation. But He promises, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. The promise of Jesus is that when we give our lives to Him, He gives us His Spirit to live in us. The Spirit of God who guides us and protects us and helps us and instructs us is there with us through everything that we face. I think about it like my relationship to my kids. I am there. I'm there when they fall. I'm there to push them on the swing. I'm there to tuck them in to bed at night. I'm there to pray over them. I will be with them to the end of me. Everywhere they are, they will know I am with them. That is the promise of Jesus to every single person who places their faith in Him. I will be with you in everything that you face. It's not a promise for me. It's a promise for all who would believe in Jesus. And of that, I will share much, much more tomorrow night. What is Jesus calling us to in this passage? He's saying, I want you to disciple when... Does he want us to do it? He says, I want you to go. I want you to go now. Where does he want us to go? He says, I want you to go to all nations. I want you to go to all people. How are we going to do it? We're going to baptize people, initiate them into the kingdom of God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Who's going to go with us? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. And why do we go? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given Jesus. This is our call, this is the vision, this is the mission that Jesus gave to us, his church. I want us to be reoriented by it when the end of this life occurs, nothing really is going to matter as much as this is going to matter. We all have jobs and vocations and we all have interests and hobbies and we all have different communities, but this is the purpose. This is the call. Not upon me, but upon all of us as Christ's body in the world. So let's receive this reorientation, this vision this morning. Let's reflect on what Jesus has said in prayer. Would you pray with me this morning? And Again, this isn't a time for us to just talk at God. This is a time for us to listen to God the leading of the Holy Spirit. How does the Lord want to lead me? How does the Lord want to shape me, given his vision for the church, given his vision for me? So Lord, I ask first of all that you would answer that question for every single one of my brothers and sisters in this room this morning. What a grand vision. We can't even conceive how much this has changed not just the foundations of all of Western civilization, but all of the world, this is so earth-shattering, all the values packed into just a couple phrases, all the truths. Lord, let us understand it. let us grasp it. God, I pray for those who are not yet disciples of you who are here, who maybe been orbiting, they've been watching from a distance. The faith, the journey of other people, God, would you call them into relationship with you or would they know that they don't have to wait till everything's figured out and their sin is fully taken care of and they've got all the answers before they're baptized, before they're immersed in you. It's an open door of invitation. You say salvation can come to us this day if we place our faith in you. The Lord Jesus would some choose to be baptized, would some choose this morning to place their faith in you? Would they come forward? Would they come to a pastor? They say, Where's water? What's keeping me from being baptized today? We'll say yes, we'll celebrate that decision. And so we'll begin a lifelong journey as your disciple, as your student, Jesus, as you motivate them with the life that is truly life. Lord, for all of us, reframe our vision for what this community is all about. Not a place just to have all our needs provided for and all of our concerns pampered, Lord, but as a staging ground where a group of people are coming together. They're being sent out, transformed to live for your purposes in this world, going forth to all people, not just the people like us, people completely different than us all the people that we're going to encounter, Lord, you have sent us to, to serve them, to demonstrate your heart, Lord, for them. Would our lives be that open door? Would our lives demonstrate that your words to us are precious, that we're yearning to live in alignment with you, Lord, empowered by your presence among us? God, we don't want to be a, a spiritual hospice center, we want to be those doctors without borders, we want to be sent out to fulfill your purpose in this world, thank you Lord for the promise that where we fall short, where we don't know enough, where our life doesn't match everything that we say Lord you've given us your Holy Spirit you've empowered us with your grace to seize this calling, thank you Lord for that, minister to my brothers and sisters give a this vision for their lives for our lives together